Hello and welcome again to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset. This is episode number 11, entitled The Great Popish Plot, 1658. On the 3rd of September, 1658, the whole structure as set up by the revolution on the ruins of the monarchy in England, tottered and fell. Communication had been opened with Charles II, a rather empty-headed individual, to whom it was made clear that if he would undertake not to disturb the vested interests created during the revolution, in other words, if he would let the settlement of property alone as they were pleased to call their stealing of other men's estates, then his return to the throne might be made easy. Charles acquiesced, and the monarchy was restored. The Irish nobility and gentry, native and Anglo-Irish, who had been so fearfully scourged for the sin of loyalty to his father, now joyfully expected that right would be done and that they would enjoy their own property once more. But they were in for a rude awakening. They soon found out that those lottery speculators or army officers or soldiers who were in possession of the estates were not to be disturbed. There was one class, however, whom it was loudly declared to be a crime not to rob, namely the Irish papists. But after a while, a low murmur of compassion and mutterings of injustice began to be heard around the royal court. The monstrous idea of justice for Catholics could not be tolerated. So what was to be done to correct this? Imitate the skilful ruse of the Irish Puritans in starting the massacre story of 1641? That was the solution. Yes, they could start an anti-Catholic frenzy with a massacre story about the future, as well as with one relating to the past. Accordingly, in 1658, the diabolical fabrication known as the Great Popish Plot made its appearance. The Protestant historian Charles James Fox declared that the Popish Plot story must always be considered an indelible disgrace upon the English nation. A proper fury had been concocted against the Catholics, preventing the idea of compensation for them, and it culminated with the murderous execution of Oliver Plunkett, the sainted martyr primate of Ireland, at Tyburn on the 11th of July, 1681. The indelible disgrace was invented by Titus Oates and supported by William Bedloe, who declared that the king was to be murdered and the Duke of York, his Catholic brother, afterwards James II, was to succeed him. That Catholicism was to be re-established, and that already the Pope had nominated Peter Talbot to be Chancellor of Ireland. Oliver Plunkett was the Catholic Archbishop of Armagh and Primate of all Ireland, who was the last victim of the Popish plot. He was beatified in 1920 and canonized in 1975, thus becoming the first new Irish saint for almost 700 years. Oliver Plunkett was born in Loch Crewe, County Meath, 
1625, a grandson of James Plunkett, Baron Killeen. Until he was 16, the boy's education was entrusted to his cousin, Patrick Plunkett, abbot of St. Mary's, Dublin, and brother of Luke Plunkett, the first Earl of Fingal, who later became successively Bishop of Armagh and of Meath. As an aspirant to the priesthood, Plunkett set out for Rome in 1647, under the care of Father Pier Francesco Scarampi, who was the papal envoy to the Catholic movement known as the Confederation of Ireland, and many of Plunkett's relatives were involved in this organisation. Plunkett was admitted to the Irish College in Rome and proved to be a very able pupil. He was ordained a priest in 1654 and deputised by the Irish bishops to act as their representative in Rome. Meanwhile, the Cromwellian conquest had defeated the Catholic cause in Ireland. In the aftermath, the public practice of Catholicism was banned and Catholic clergy were executed. As a result, it was impossible for Plunkett to return to Ireland for many years. He petitioned to remain in Rome and, in 1657, became a professor of theology. Throughout the period of the Commonwealth and the first years of Charles II's reign, he successfully pleaded the cause of the Irish Catholic Church. On the 9th of July 1669, he was appointed Archbishop of Armagh and returned to Irish soil again on the 7th of March 1670. The penal laws had been relaxed in line with the Declaration of Breda in 1660, and he was able to establish a Jesuit college in Drogheda in 1670. A year later, 150 students attended the college, no fewer than 40 of whom were Protestant, making this college the first integrated school in Ireland. His ministry was a successful one, and he is said to have confirmed 48,000 Catholics over a four-year period. The government in Dublin, especially under the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Duke of Ormond, the Protestant son of Catholic parents, extended a generous measure of toleration to the Catholic hierarchy until the mid-1670s. However, because of the despicable Popish plot, Plunkett was arrested in Dublin in December 1679 and imprisoned in Dublin Castle where he gave absolution to the dying Peter Talbot. Plunkett was tried at Dundalk for conspiring against the state by allegedly plotting to bring 20,000 French soldiers into the country and for levying a tax on his clergy to support 70,000 men for rebellion. This was never proven, and so Lord Shaftesbury had Plunkett moved to Newgate Prison in London in order to face trial at Westminster Hall. The first grand jury found no fruit in the accusation, but he was not released. The second trial has generally been regarded as a serious miscarriage of justice. Plunkett was denied defending counsel, although Hugh Riley acted as his legal adviser, and also refused time to assemble his defence witnesses and he was also frustrated in his attempts to obtain the criminal records of those who were to give evidence. His servant, James McKenna, and a relative, John Plunkett, had travelled back to Ireland and failed within the time available to bring back witnesses and evidence for their defence. 
During the trial, Archbishop Plunkett had disputed the right of the court to try him in England, and he also drew attention to the criminal past of the witnesses, but to no avail. Lord Chief Justice Sir Francis Pemberton, addressing these complaints, said to Plunkett, Look you, Mr. Plunkett, it is in vain for you to talk and make this discourse here now. And later on, again, look you, Mr. Plunkett, don't misspend your own time, for the more you trifle in these things, the less time you will have for your defence. Plunkett was found guilty of high treason in June 1681 for promoting the Roman faith, and was condemned to death. In passing judgment, the Chief Justice said, You have done as much as you could to dishonour God in this case, for the bottom of your treason was your setting up your false religion, than which there is not anything more displeasing to God, or more pernicious to mankind in the world. The jury returned within fifteen minutes with a guilty verdict, and Archbishop Plunkett replied, Deo gracias. Plunkett was hanged, drawn, and quartered at Tyburn on the 1st of July, 1681, aged 55, the last Catholic martyr to die in England. Peter Talbot, 1620-1680, was the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Dublin from 1669 to his death in prison. He was a victim of the Popish plot. He was born at Malahide, County Dublin, and was the second of the eight sons of Sir William Talbot. At an early age he entered the Society of Jesus in Portugal. He was ordained a priest at Rome, and for some years thereafter held the chair of theology at the College of Antwerp. Meanwhile, during the Commonwealth period, Charles II and the royal family were compelled to seek refuge in Europe. Throughout the period of the king's exile, Talbot's brothers were attached to the royal court. The eldest brother, Sir Robert Talbot, had held a high commission under James Butler, 1st Duke of Ormond, in the army in Ireland, and was reckoned among the king's most confidential advisers. A younger brother, Richard Talbot, later Earl of Tyrconnell, was also devoted to the cause of the exiled monarch, and stood high in royal favour. On the return of the king to London, Talbot received an appointment as Queen's Almoner, but the Clarendon and Ormond faction, which was then predominant, feared his influence with the king. He was accused of conspiring with the aid of four Jesuits to assassinate the Duke of Ormond, and he was forced to seek safety by resigning his position at court and retiring to the continent. The king allowed him a pension of £300 a year. Before his return to England, Talbot had, with the approval of the General of the Jesuits, severed his connection with the Society. He was appointed Archbishop of Dublin on the 11th of January 1669. Another meeting of the Catholic gentry was convened by Talbot, at which it was resolved to send to the Court of London a representative who would seek redress for some of the grievances to which the Catholics of Ireland were subjected. This alarmed the Protestants of Ireland, who feared that the balance of power might shift to the Catholic majority. They protested to King Charles II, and in 1673 some of the repressive measures against Irish Catholics were reinstated, and Talbot was compelled to seek safety 
in exile. During his banishment, he resided generally in Paris. In 1675, Talbot, in poor health, obtained permission to return to England, and for two years he resided with a family friend at Poole Hall in Cheshire. Towards the close of 1677, he petitioned the Crown for leave to come to Ireland to die in his own country, and through the influence of James, Duke of York, his request was granted. On the 8th of October 1678, Ormond signed a warrant for the Archbishop's arrest. He was arrested near Maynooth at the house of his brother, Colonel Richard Talbot, and was then moved to Dublin. For two years Talbot remained in prison, where he fell ill. Despite their long friendship, Charles II, fearful of the political repercussions, made no effort to save him. He died in prison at the beginning of November 1680. The English Parliament belonged to a coalition of landowners, manufacturers, merchants and financiers. In other words, the mercantilists. Before the end of the 17th century, long before the economist Adam Smith, England heard the employer's cry for laissez-faire, for economic freedom from legal, feudal and guild hindrances in employment, production and trade. The guild restraints were bypassed, the institution of apprenticeship decayed, the fixing of wages by magistrates was superseded by the relative bargaining power of rich employers and hungry employees. Commerce was now so important in the English economy and so vital for earning of funds that Parliament needed that even a government dominated by landowners voted for it. This legislation favoured English trade at the expense not only of the Irish, but also the Dutch and the Scots. The importation of Irish cattle, sheep and pigs into England was totally prohibited. Scottish corn was excluded, and Scottish imports were heavily taxed. The alliance with Portugal, the marriage of Charles II with Catherine of Braganza, the renewed war with the United Provinces, the resolute retention of Gibraltar, were actuated by the desire to expand English commerce and give it military protection. Partly as a result of victory over the Dutch, English commerce doubled between 1660 and 1688. The thing which is nearest to the heart of this nation, wrote Charles II to his sister, is trade and all that belongs to it. Mercantile fortunes now rivaled the landowner's acreage. English enterprise extended its outposts in every direction. New colonies were developed in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Carolina and Canada. The East India Company was given full rights over all of India. It had its own navy, army, forts, coinage and laws. It declared war and negotiated peace. Bombay was acquired by marriage in 1661. Manhattan by conquest in 1664, and in that year the English seized Dutch possessions on the west coast of Africa. To man these colonies, the custom of crimping grew. Young Englishmen were inveigled into service in the plantation by getting them drunk or knocking them unconscious, then carrying them on board a departing ship, and later explaining to them that they had signed an indenture. 
This also explains, but does not condone, why Henry Cromwell was carrying out his kidnapping of young boys and girls in Ireland during that time and shipping them into slavery. Titus Oates, 1649-1705, who first fabricated the Popish plot, was expelled from the Merchant Taylor's School at the age of 16. He attended Cambridge University, leaving, as his tutor noted, because he was a great dunce, ran into debt, and being sent away for want of money, never took a degree. Nevertheless, by 1673... Oates had somehow managed to enter the Anglican clergy. He used his office to defame a local schoolmaster, but he was denounced as a perjurer and jailed. He later escaped. After being expelled from a brief naval chaplaincy, Oates went to London, again posing as a cleric, though it is questionable whether he was ever ordained. In 1676, he joined forces with a vehement anti-Catholic clergyman, Israel Tong. Together, they projected an elaborate plan to discredit Roman Catholicism as a treasonous international conspiracy. Oates, feigning conversion to Roman Catholicism for the purpose of gathering evidence, attended two Jesuit missionary schools on the continent. Being quickly expelled from both, he returned to England in 1678 with fictitious evidence that convinced gullible government officials of a plot to kill the king. Oates exploited the traditional English fear of Roman Catholicism between 1678 and 1681, terrifying the government into giving him complete judicial power. His emotional appeal to large audiences is a nearly instance of the political manipulation of public opinion. He was given plenary power by Parliament and had merely to accuse to convict. Oates' stories were swallowed and believed, and Catholics were pursued with fury. Many were imprisoned, and after sham trials, which in every sense were a disgrace to England, large numbers were hanged at Tyburn. Oates' testimony was not discredited until the end of 1681, when it was finally realised that his evidence was hearsay and contradictory. His power and large salary were gradually withdrawn. And when James II came to the throne in 1685, Oates was convicted of perjury, whipped, pilloried and jailed. Though he was released after the glorious revolution of 1688, the rest of Oates' life was marked by lawsuits, debt and fruitless intrigue, and his entrance into and expulsion from the Baptist Church. He died in London in July 1705. His co-conspirator, William Bedloe, 1650 to 1680, appears to have been well educated. He was certainly clever, and after arriving in London in 1670, he became acquainted with some Jesuits, and was occasionally employed by them, calling himself now Captain Williams, now Lord Gerard, or Lord Newport, or Lord Cornwallis. He travelled from one part of Europe to another, he underwent imprisonments for crime and became an expert in all kinds of duplicity. Then in 1678, following the lead of Titus Oates, he gave an account of a supposed popish plot to the English government. He married an Irish lady, 
and having become extremely popular, lived in luxurious fashion. Afterwards, his fortunes waned, and he died at Bristol on the 10th of August 1680. King Charles II of England reigned as leader of an Anglican nation during this period of religious tension. He signed a treaty with French King Louis XIV in 1670. In the treaty, he agreed to convert to Catholicism and support the French in their war against the Dutch. However, it was not until he was on his deathbed that King Charles II finally went through with his promise. He converted to Catholicism, despite the anger of many of his Anglican subjects. Back in Ireland, orders were issued that all priests should quit the country and that all convents and churches should be closed. Catholics were turned out of Galway, Limerick, Waterford, Kilkenny, Clonmel and Drogheda, and rewards were offered for information on officers and soldiers who attended Mass. In the long series of judicial murders, that of Oliver Plunkett was the worst, although it was the last. Despite all the laws, the English planters took in Irish tenants, employed Irish workers, married Irish wives, learned their customs, spoke their language, and embraced their faith. This weird fascination of the Irish nature was again potent with the stranger, who was attracted, absorbed, and assimilated. And in the next generation, the sons of Cromwellian troopers fought against the Protestant King William and in favour of Catholic King James. Their hearts were bitter against England, and their eyes kindled at the recital of Irish suffering and Irish wrongs. Many Irish families, therefore, have Cromwellian adventurers in their genealogy, but may not be aware of it, because registration of marriages and births was not compulsory until 1827 or about that time. Even then, Catholic priests were hunted and on the run from bounty hunters, but they were conducting marriages in secret between Irish Colleans and Ironsiders. Therefore, all such unions were ignored, unless the family kept a record of the event. The novelist Kate O'Brien, in her autobiography, Presentation Parlour, written in 1963, reveals that her great-great-grandfather was a Cromwellian soldier named Thornhill. Kate was the fourth daughter of Catherine Thornhill and Thomas O'Brien, and was born in Limerick in 1897. The well-known saying used by historians down through the years, becoming more Irish than the Irish themselves, is applicable to the offspring of many invaders to the land of the golden sunset. It was commonly used about the Norman French, but is equally applicable to the Anglo-Saxon, the Scotch and Welsh, as well as the early founders, the Milesians. In London... Hundreds of goldsmiths had become bankers, who paid 6% to depositors and charged 8% on loans. Charles II, always seeking ways to bypass the parliamentary power over the purse, borrowed heavily from these bankers. So much so that by January 2nd, 1672, he owed them £1.4 million. On that date, his council about to begin war against the United Provinces, shocked the financial community by closing the exchequer. That is, stopping for a year all interest payments on government debt, a panic ensued. 
The bankers refused to meet their obligations to their depositors or to keep their agreements with merchants. The council quieted the storm by solemn pledges to resume payments at the end of a year. They were resumed in 1674. The principal was refunded in new governmental obligations, so that, in effect, January the 2nd, 1672, marked the beginning of England's national debt, a new device in the financing of the state. London, home of the banking firms and the merchant princes, and focus of wealth, albeit private opulence and public squalor, was now the most populous city in Europe. The mansions of the rich businessmen rivalled the aristocracy in luxury, if not in taste. A succession of stores with their picturesque emblems, swaying signs and decorated windows offered to the few the products of the world. The business centre, called The City, was governed by a Lord Mayor, a Board of Aldermen and a Common Council, elected by the householders of the wards. West of this lay the political centre, Westminster, with Westminster Abbey, Westminster Palace and the Royal Palaces of Whitehall and St. James. And the factory system was expanding. In the making of a watch, wrote Sir William Petty in 1683, if one man shall make the wheels, another the spring, another shall engrave the dial plate, and another shall make the cases, then the watch will be better and cheaper made than if the whole work be put upon any one man.' 